morning, uh, we continue our series, Long Expected Jesus, working through the season of Advent together, and we come to a passage in Romans chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 19 and read down through verse 26 together. At first glance, you may wonder what this has to do with Christmas, but I hope by the time that we're done this morning, you see that it has everything to do with Christmas. So Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, we'll read through verse 26 together. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there. Paul writes these words, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's Word. Uh, In just a few days, uh, we will gather in living rooms and around trees in homes uh, to give and receive gifts, right? To exchange things with people that we know or care about. And regardless of the gifts that you may have purchased or the gifts that you're anticipating receiving, all of us, typically whenever we give a gift to someone else, uh, we give it out of either appreciation for that person or affection for that person, Right, so there may be people in your life that you appreciate. So like teachers, right? Teachers get all kinds of goodies this time of the year. They get chocolates and candies and gift cards and coffee mugs and sugar scrub and all those kinds of stuff, right? Uh, the kids just pile those things on their desk every year at Christmas. And so that's out of appreciation for the investment that they're making um, in the life of those students on a day-by-day basis, Other individuals in your life that you may give gifts to, uh, you give out of affection for them, out of a love for them. And it's the closer that you get to individuals in your life that you care deeply for, typically the higher price tag of the gift, okay? Um, So those that you appreciate, you may give at one level, but those you have deep affection for, you may give at a different level, right? For those who are your sons or daughters, those who are your mothers or fathers, those who are like family, okay? They're like friends who are like family, but they're not blood-related, but they feel like family because they're so deeply woven into your life, right? There's deep investment there, deep affection, and so you may give another level level of gift to those individuals. And as we anticipate the giving and receiving of gifts here in a few days, while you may receive and give some great gifts, I want to tell you this morning that there is no greater gift that you could receive than the one God Himself has given to us. There is no greater gift. Here in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul tells us that even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we're able to be justified by God's grace as a gift, as something that He bestows, as something that He gives freely. 
And there's no greater gift this Christmas than the one that God has given by His grace. And in this particular context, what Paul says God has given us as a gift by His grace is the gift of justification. That's what he says in Romans chapter 3. Now, justification throughout Paul's letters is a term that's used to describe a, a declaration an announcement or a pronouncement of something, right? It means to declare or pronounce one to be just or to be righteous or that someone is as they ought to be in the sight of God. Okay, so this is how you ought to be in the sight of God and that's what you're declared to be in the sight of God through justification. In other words, it means that God by His grace as a gift, not something that you earned, not something that I deserved, has made it possible for us to be declared righteous or declared to be as we ought to be in God's sight. And in Romans chapter 5, as the argument continues through the book, because this is not just, we, don't just keep, we can't just camp out always in one place, but we've got to see how that argument flows. In Romans chapter 5, Paul goes on to say that this gift of justification, it was given as a demonstration of God's love for us. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Paul says justification, being as seen as we ought to be in the sight of God and declared or pronounced to be such, righteous, when we can look in the mirror and say, I am not righteous. I can see my deeds and they are not as they ought to be in the sight of God. And for God to look on us, upon us, that indeed we are as we ought to be in His sight is a gift that Paul calls justification. And while you may think you need a lot of things this Christmas, and you may have a long list that you sent to Santa at the North Pole, kiddos, right? The one thing that you and I can't miss is justification. This gift that God has given. And so this morning from this text, I want us to see three things. Why we need it, how we get it, and what do we do with it. Right? Why we need it, how we get it, and what do we do with it. First of all, why we need it. And the reason that you and I need this gift from God is because our merit is insufficient. Now, I use the word merit here for a particular reason. The word merit means a, a claim to respect and praise or some, something that's excellent about us, something that's worthy about us, something that justifies or deserves a reward or a commendation, a pat on the back, an attaboy, a trophy to put on the shelf. Essentially, merit has to do with your record, my abilities, my accomplishments, or my achievements. That's what merit is. It's something that we've earned. It's something that we've deserved. And when it comes to being justified, our merit is absolutely, unequivocally insufficient to be declared right before God. Let me see if I can break it down for you like this. Listen, on August 24th, 1875, a man by the name of Captain Matthew Webb of Great Britain became the first man to successfully swim across the English Channel. Okay, from the shores of Britain to the shores of France without any assistance. Okay, so nobody's helping this dude along the way. 
He's swimming in those waters across the ocean. And since that time, another 1,880 individuals has completed that solo swim across the channel. Now, the distance across the English Channel at the point at which most people would cross it is approximately 21 miles. Can you imagine swimming for 21 miles? I can barely swim for 21 meters, okay, without doggy paddling, right? But 21 miles, the swim across the English Channel. Right? And many others have tried and failed. Right? You've got to be a pretty strong swimmer in order to swim across the English Channel 21 miles, not in a swimming pool, but in the ocean with rising and lowering tides, with waves that are crashing perhaps over top of you. And while there are some swimmers who can make that swim, listen, if all of us lined up on the shores of Great Britain and we determined that we were going to try to swim across the Atlantic Ocean, to reach the North American continent. I guarantee you guys like Captain Matthew Webb would make it a lot further than I would. <laughs> right? They might make it 21 miles. They might make it 25 miles. They might make it 30 miles. But I can guarantee you that every single person who lined up on the shores of Great Britain and tried to swim across the shore, to the shores of North America would eventually drown or be devoured by sea animals. Right? None of us would make it across. Paul says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says it unequivocally. Right? That there's not, while some of us, our lives may look more respectable, more worthy of commendation than others, he says the nature of sin is this, is that it's infected all of us as human beings, and there's not a single one of us who could swim that distance who can close that gap between the perfection of God and the imperfections in us while some of us have, may have higher degrees of approximation than others right God when, in God's eyes he doesn't look down and go well they, they got that far surely I can just go ahead and call that good right God doesn't accept approximation he accepts perfection because that's who God is and none of us can meet that mark. We all fall short of God's glory. Our merit is absolutely insufficient, church, when it comes to justification. And one of the reasons our merit is insufficient is because as we try to measure our merit, what's worthy or commendable about our lives, against the law, right? There has to be some standard by which you're measuring it against. As we measure it against the law, what we come to see in Romans chapter 3, verses 9, is that the law itself is powerless to justify us because the law was not given for that purpose. It wasn't given for that. Let me read verses 19 and 20 for you again. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, when you see the word so that in the Bible, you can circle it because the author is indicating some purpose. Right? Some purpose for what he's about to say. Right? He says the law speaks to those who are under the law so that, purpose statement, every mouth may be stopped. In other words, there is no one who can open their mouth and argue with God about the approximation of their life as it measures up against His perfect standard. There is no one. Right? All the arguments are silenced. Every mouth is shut before God. 
and the whole world is held accountable. He says the law is given so that every human being may be accountable to God. The whole world must answer to Him, Paul says. And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's argument here is this, that every man, woman, and child is held accountable to God. There's no room for arguing and that the law was given, right? Not so, right? The, the, the reason that the law was given, Paul says, is so that, right, but our mouths would be silenced. We would all be accountable to God. And then at the end of verse 20, he says that no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight. And then he says the word since. You know what the word since means when it shows up? Oftentimes in our English grammar, it means a reason. Or because of this. Or since this, since this happened. Right? This is the reality. And he says since. The law was given to show us what sin is, not save us from what sin does. To give us knowledge of sin. So we would understand whenever we look at a particular desire in our hearts, or we would look at a particular action in our lives, we would be able to see what sin is. It would be clear to us. We would have knowledge of it. But God did, never intends that the law would deal with what sin does. Separating us from Him making us objects of His wrath, His anger, His just condemnation. The law was never designed to deal with that. It was designed to show us what sin is, not deal with what sin does. So as a result, no matter how well we think we might approximate the keeping of God's standards, all of us are going to drown somewhere off the coast of England. All of us. Because our merit is insufficient. Not enough. It's always going to be found lacking. So that's why we need this gift of justification that God has given. But how do we get it? How do we get it? And Paul's going to say unequivocally here in Romans 3 and throughout the rest of the argument about justification in Romans that it's received by faith. It's received by faith. Now, Church, faith is placing your confidence in something or someone other than yourself. Well, you can place faith in yourself. I suppose you can place your confidence in yourself, right? Believing that your merit is sufficient. But faith is always placing our confidence, placing our trust in something or someone. And you can place your faith in all kinds of things. When you walked in this room this morning and you scoped out the available seating in the auditorium and you walked over to the seat in which you would like to be seated and you sat down in that chair, you were placing a degree of confidence in that plastic and that aluminum that it was going to hold your weight up. Right? That was a degree of faith. Whenever you got in your car this morning and you turned the key to start the ignition, there was a degree of faith placing your confidence in the fact that that car is going to fire and it's going to propel you to the destination at which you want to arrive. There's a degree of faith. Right? It's placing our confidence 
in something or someone. And when Paul says that this gift is to be received by faith, he says you are to, what he means by that is that we are to place our confidence in Jesus' ability to justify us, to declare us to be righteous before God. Be as we ought in the sight of God. Paul says in verses 21 to 23 that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, even though it was spoken about in both the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets. He says they both bore witness to it. They were both pointing to it. So he says if you go back and read the Old Testament through the lens of what I, what Christ has come to do, all of a sudden the Old Testament comes alive with all sorts of shades that you never saw before. Because he's the fulfillment of those things. Paul says that it was the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. And he says the reason it's for everyone who believes is because there's no distinction because everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short. Everyone's merit is insufficient. And so it's for all who believe anyone who would place their confidence in what Christ has done for them. That they would know that they've fallen short of God's standard of perfection and they've thrown themselves upon God in His mercy that He would, as a gift, justify them. And Paul goes on to give an illustration of this all, in basically all of Romans chapter 4. Right? All of Romans chapter 4, if you go back and read it, I'm not going to read it to you this morning, but all of Romans chapter 4 is this. It's an ongoing illustration of this truth of justification by faith. And he points back to who? Abram. Where is Abram? The Old Testament. Where's, what part of the Old Testament? In the Pentateuch, the first five books Right? And so he points back to Abram, the books of the law that testify to this righteousness of God that's coming apart from works of the law, apart from our ability to achieve it, apart from our merit to earn it. And he points back to Abram whenever God makes promise to Abram and he says, I'm making a covenant with you and that your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the sea, the stars in the sky. And it says, Abram did what? He went out and worked really hard to make that a reality. No, it says Abram believed God. Placed his confidence, his faith, his trust in God. And God did something amazing. He credited Abram's faith as his righteousness. That Abram would believe this promise of God and God would credit it to him. Many of us have those little plastic things in our wallets or our purses called credit cards, don't we? And those credit cards, listen, I don't know if you've learned this yet or not, but that is not your money. <laughs> okay? That is the bank's money. Right? And they are crediting it to you. To your account. They give you a credit limit or a credit line which, which you can use, but it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the bank. Listen, whenever God takes the faith of Abram and credits it to him, it is not that he's taking Abram's righteousness and saying, you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone enough people like you, so I like you too, Abram, and you and I are square. He's saying, no, I'm taking the fact that you've placed your confidence in me as, as your righteousness. So you are as you ought to be in my sight because you believe on 
me. It was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that the way that we receive this gift that God has given of justification is by faith. By placing your confidence in what God has done in Christ. And let me give you two specific things this morning, which I believe to be the case of what we're placing our confidence in about Jesus from this text. First one is this, that you're putting your faith in Jesus' sinless life. You're putting your faith in Jesus' sinless life. In verses 25 and 26, Paul writes these words. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In verse 25, Paul's referring to the past. He's referring to what has come before. He says that God withheld His judgment, forbearance. He forgave sins in the past. He forgave the former sins, but His righteousness, the fact that He was pure and perfect, it still demanded the execution of justice. And so He puts Jesus forward, as we'll see in a minute, as a sacrifice. Some of your translations say atoning sacrifice. Some of your translations say propitiation. Right? He puts Jesus forward as this because He's passed over those former sins in His divine forbearance, forgiving those former sins, but He still requires justice because He is perfect in His righteousness. And then in verse 26, Paul moves to the present. He says God shows His righteousness at the present time by putting forward Jesus as this atoning sacrifice, as this propitiation, to be both the, so that He would show Himself to be both just in punishing sin, Right? That sin could not go unpunished. He's just in punishing sin, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he would be able to show himself to be the one who is just and punishes sin and the justifier of the one who pardons sinners and declares them to be righteous. He says he did all this through Jesus' sacrificial death. Now, Consider this with me for a moment, church. If Jesus was to satisfy the punishment of former sins that had come before His life, that had come before His incarnation, that had come before He was born on that night to a virgin in a ma- and laid in a manger, if He was to satisfy God's just anger against former sins and pave the way for pardon in the present for those who had committed sin, then Jesus could not be dying for His own sin. Because if Jesus is dying for His own sin, then there's no way that his payment could be credited to someone else by faith. Because he's receiving the just punishment for his own. And yet throughout the scriptures, we're told time and time again that Jesus, he he says in the gospels that he's come not to abolish the law, but what? Fulfill it. In other words, he's come to 
dot every I, cross every T. He lives a perfect and sinless life so that whenever He comes to be strung up on the cross and He begins to bleed as He's punctured for our, our sins, not His, that that payment can be then credited to us and our account can be wiped clean as we are justified by faith in Him. So placing our faith in His sinless life. In the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that we just sang together a moment ago. Charles Wesley, in one of the verses, writes these words. He says, By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. And by thine all-sufficient merit. All-sufficient merit. That in his sinless life, that Jesus acquired all the merit for His perfect obedience to the law that could then be credited to us who believe upon Him. That's good news, church. Second, put your faith not only in Jesus' sinless life, but in His saving death. In His saving death. In verse 24, Paul says, he continues the argument, all sin been fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation to satisfy His anger against sin through the shedding of Jesus' blood. In other words, the blood of Jesus was shed for us in His torture and in His crucifixion, right? To satisfy the just anger of God against the sin of His people. Now that word propitiation, that's a big 25 cent theological term, okay? But the concept of propitiation is this, is to take the wrath or anger of God upon one and then to turn the wrath or anger of God, of God away from something or someone. And this concept is not new in the New Testament. It's rooted deeply in the Old Testament. If you want to read about this, go to Leviticus chapter 16. Because on the Day of Atonement, okay, you had two things happening here on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16. And it involved two goats. All right? So they brought two goats in to the high priest and the high priest would take one of the goats and he would sacrifice the goat unto the Lord. And he would, as he sacrificed the goat, then the goat, the blood of the goat would be taken in to the most holy of holies and they would sprinkle the blood of the goat upon the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant. So the blood of the goat sprinkled upon the mercy seat and in so doing, the anger of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God is satisfied against His people's sin because blood has been shed and has been dripped upon the mercy seat as God has prescribed. And so that goat took the wrath of God and turned it aside from God's people so that God's people would know His mercy. That's propitiation. There's another thing that happens on that day as well because there's a second goat. And that term in the Bible is expiation, right? And what happens there is the goat, other goat, right? 
He didn't die immediately, but the priest would confess the sins of the people on the head of that goat. And then somebody had the inauspicious job of leading that goat way far out into the wilderness to where it would never be able to find its way back into the city. And it would be left there to die. So as this priest confessed the sins of the people under the head of that second goat, he was confessing the guilt and the shame that the people bore on account of their sins. And then that guilt and that shame was led into the wilderness outside the city. It was carried away. Their guilt and their shame was removed. The anger of God against sin, His justice is satisfied. One goat takes it and turns it. The other goat carries away the guilt and the shame of the people. And I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that Jesus did both in His substitutionary sacrifice. That the anger of God, the justice of God was satisfied as one who was sinless, bore the sins of the world, turning aside the anger of God against those who have placed their faith in Christ and been declared as they ought to be in the sight of God through Jesus. But He's also removed the guilt and the shame because Jesus Himself is crucified where? Outside the city. He's led outside the city and that's where He bears the the guilt and the shame and the sins of God's people. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. He bore our punishment, took God's wrath, turned it aside, carried away our guilt and shame. And listen, if this gift that God has provided for us is the gift of justification being pronounced to be as we ought to be in the sight of God through the sinless life and saving death of Jesus Christ. The Bible, it seems too good to be true, doesn't it? But the Bible says you receive it by faith. You throw your confidence, push all your chips to the center of the table and say, I'm all in on Jesus. I trust Him. I repent of my sin. I yield my life to Him. I lay my life down at His feet. This is what He has done for me. I cannot fathom it. I can't find the depths of it. I keep probing for the depths of it, but I can't find it because it's so amazing. The gift of His grace. If you've yet to do this this morning, and you're in this room, or you're on live stream today. I want to say this to you this morning, that while you may receive all kinds of fancy gadgets this Christmas, and while you may receive all kinds of functional and beautiful gifts this Christmas, more valuable that you could receive than this gift of God saying, You are as you ought to be in my sight because of faith in the finished work of Christ. And all you must do is receive it by faith. Let go of your confidence in your own merit. Acknowledge that it's insufficient. 
Acknowledge that Jesus' merit for you and his sinless life is sufficient and that in his death, he turned God's anger away and he carried away your guilt and your shame so that you could be declared right in his eyes. Receive it by faith. But for those of you in the room this morning who have received it, what do you do with this gift? What do you do with this gift? Let me say as I close this morning, let me encourage you this Christmas to enjoy it by faith as well. To enjoy it by faith. See, there's a variety of types of gifts you might give and receive next week. But I want you to think of two broad categories this morning. First of all, gifts that are beautiful. They're beautiful, right? You might receive a piece of art that you might hang over your couch in your living room or hang over your bed in your bedroom or hang next to your dining room table over that buffet right there. It's a beautiful piece of art. The color art, not ark, that's a big boat, but art, right? Art that you hang over there. The colors are majestic. The scene is tranquil. Whatever it is, whether you're a contemporary person, an abstract person, a more watercolor person, I don't know what you are, but it's a beautiful piece of art. And the more you stare at that piece of art, the more beautiful it becomes to you. Or you might receive books, gifts like jewelry, right, that are stunning, or music, that as you listen to it, you hear fine notes that come out every time you hear the song that you didn't hear before. Right? And so there are beautiful gifts that you may receive. There's also functional gifts that you might receive as well. You might receive some electronics, some new gadgets that make your life a lot more complicated when they're supposed to make it a lot more simple. You might receive some tools that you're able to do things with now that you could not do before. You might receive some cookware. Right? So you're in the kitchen stirring things up, baking things up, getting ready to have people over. So all kinds of functional gifts as well. Two broad categories of gifts. Things that are beautiful, things that are functional. And I want to tell you that this gift that God has given is both. It's not either or, but it is both and. It is beautiful, church, because it puts on the fullest display, its fullest expression of love that's ever been put on display ever been put on display. This is why we're moved by stories of self-giving, self-sacrifice, the laying down of someone's life for the good of others. Right? Have you ever noticed the great arcs of literature? Right? Oftentimes they end or they climax in that place. Somebody setting aside their selves for the sake of others. Yesterday I had the opportunity to go with uh, my son and a couple of our friends to watch the new Spider-Man No Way Home movie. Now, I know it just came out, so I, I'm not going to spoil it for you, okay? But at the end of the movie, Peter Parker, right? Spider-Man, this teenage boy, is faced with a decision that he must make. And if he, were to, if he chooses one option, let's call it option A, because I don't want to spoil the ending for you, right? Spo option A, then he could go on and continue to live life as he has always known it to be with the people that he knows, the people that he loves, the people that know and love him. But if he, chooses, but if he does, then the whole world is going to be torn asunder. But if he chooses option B, the whole world will be healed. 
but he will lose all those that he's ever loved. And they will lose him. He chooses option B. I'm not going to tell you what those options were, but he chooses option B. Right? He sets himself aside for the sake of the world. And listen, I know it's a silly superhero movie. I get it. But I'm sitting there in the theater and I'm beginning to like fight back tears. He lays himself aside for the sake of others. It's the most beautiful story. That's why we're moved by those kinds of stories. That's why we're captivated by those kinds of stories. Because those kinds of stories tap in to this ultimate divine reality. That this is what God has done for himself in Jesus Christ. That's why they move us the way they do. It's beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful than that. But listen, church, it's also functional. Because it works on the foundational structures of our hearts. It does something to us. It does something to us. Right? Two things. It does a lot more than these two things. But I'll tell you two things it does to us. First of all, it melts away 